Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Today's guest, Antje Weisheimer, is a research fellow at Oxford University's physics department, and she has two roles. First, as a climate scientist at the National Centre for Atmospheric Science, and as a senior scientist at the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts. I've had the previous pleasure of hearing Antje present her research before, and she has phenomenal data analysis, graphics, and animations to explain the complexity of weather. And for her to come on a podcast is very, very brave, and I hope we can relay the depth and detail of her work sufficiently well with just audio. Antje's work is to predict weather and climate and to understand the impact of climate change on weather, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the show. Antje, welcome to Zero Five O. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Great. Well, I hope I did justice to your amazing career with the introduction. (laughs) You did very well. (laughs) Excellent. Great. So what we normally do on the podcast is sort of we end up talking about your sort of subject matter and then who you are a bit later on. But I think we don't have people on on the show very often who've got two very senior academic jobs. So it'd be great for the listeners to hear about what your different roles are and, and what you do. Yes, um, you are totally right that this is quite unusual, I would say, within my community, work community, to have two jobs as I do. So I'm very, very pleased about this and I try to make the best of both worlds. And these two worlds connect uh, different ends of basically the same problem. It's about the atmosphere around us, the, the weather and the climate, and the climate eventually is only made up of weather. And what happens in there? And that's affected not only by the atmosphere, it's also affected by the the ocean close to the British Isles here, but everywhere in the world, really, by the ice, by the biosphere, by the geosphere and other things. But the weather is what, what interests me and the weather and the, the climate that it creates over longer timescales. What are, what are the two different organizations that you're working for do? Are they different institutions same sort of thing or are they very are they have they got very different objectives they're they're quite different in the sense that maybe i start with my job at reading in the european center for medium range weather forecast or in short ecmwf could also say it's early closing monday wednesday friday but we prefer the name european (laughs) weather forecast based in reading in the outskirts of reading and this is an international place, an international organization, not an EU organization, but international, based on lots of European countries, where we try to pull together resources, both in the sense of human resources, lots of people from countries all over Europe, but also technical resources, computing resources, essentially, to create weather forecasts for for the whole world on an operational basis, like 24-7, every day, twice a day, we run big computer models to create the weather forecasts that you all see, either on television or on your telephone or wherever. Behind all this is a huge, complex machinery of computing, forecasting the weather, and this is done in Reading at the center. It's one of the leading centers in the world, and it serves all the member state national meteorological services. For instance, the UK Met Office, based in Exeter, they are our shareholders, so to say, one of our shareholders. We send our forecasts and data to them, and they process them in a way that is accessible for everyday usage by normal people like us. 
So on the television, part of their forecast comes from us. They also run some additional forecasting processing on their side, but the underlying uh, forecast is often based on our model here. So that's that's fascinating because you're very close to this operational production at the, at the very heart of the weather forecast. And when we say weather forecast, we, we need to a little bit distinguish between the timescales. So when I set a title for this institution, it had in it medium range. And that means in weather terms, that means we're looking at a range of, say, three to 10, 15 days, roughly. This is our target um, forecast period. So the forecast for the next few hours wouldn't necessarily come from us. For the next few days and the next couple of weeks, they, they are the ones that we, we aim to produce very well. And you need to predict weather for three to 15 days, that further out forecast, do you need more computing power? Is it is that more complicated than the next three days or is it just a completely different skill set? It's all based on very similar ideas and these are physical ideas so we use equations that we integrate on a big computer that we basically solve on a big computer and these are the same the uh, one big difference is the, the role of chaos and unpredictability that comes in on the sort of time that kicks more in on these time scales for uh, in the medium range from from a few days to a few weeks and then eventually at roughly two weeks or so we reach what we call the the predictability horizon from from initial value forecast, which is what we do. We start from some some conditions and then predict it out. But in chaos, we know that small changes at the beginning of a forecast can have huge impact after a while. And this is normally reached at 10, 15 days. So this is our sort of limit of uh, predictability from these initial conditions. And after that, we use a slightly different approach in the sense that it's not so much the the start date of the forecast that is, is, is very crucial, but it's more the conditions that surround the atmosphere, like the ocean, the, the upper parts of the, the higher atmosphere, the stratosphere, the sea ice components. So it's the same models, but we used to take it slightly differently. We use computers, and yes, the longer we, we try to forecast, the more computing resources we need, yeah. And it's very interesting you said it's global. I hadn't actually realized it was a global resource and you're doing weather for the entire world. Um, so there's there's people other than the British that are in, interested in weather than it would seem around the world. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a British pastime. You, you're right. <laughs> no, I mean, weather forecasting and climate modeling is very much a global affair because the weather doesn't know about boundaries. As you can imagine, that the flow in the in the atmosphere is around the whole globe, and it doesn't stop anywhere. And if you want to make precise or good forecasts, um, especially on the longer forecast ranges, you need to know what's happening upstream. So our weather here in the UK often comes from the west with the western flow, so from say the Atlantic and the the, the American continent, and. You can imagine it takes a few days to for any signal from there to propagate to us. So we need to consider what's happening in other parts of the world in order to make good forecasts here. And other people in other countries realize the same and have the same approach. Yeah. And where in the world's the hardest with that with the, with the European mid-range forecasting model? Where is there a, a, a point? A place in the world, a region where you go and oh, go. It's the it's the whatever it is data that's playing up again because that is a particularly difficult area to predict the weather. Yes, that's that's a very good question. So our problem, our our models, our forecast have sort of 
the, the hardest problems for them, I would say, are in mountainous regions where we have steep hills next to quite narrow valleys. And this poses a problem because the way we try to solve these physical equations. So what we do is we we put these equations on a grid you, you, as if you have a fishing grid and you put that over the whole world and you do that for several layers in the atmosphere. And then on each of these ends of the, 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 the points where then the grid comes together, you try to solve your equation. And the finer your grid is, the better you can resolve what's what's happening. But if you have a mountain areas, like a big mountain range, like, say, the Alps in Europe, you put this grid over them, this net over them, you won't be able to quite get all the features of these local valleys, the structures in, in certain mountain ranges. And then we have problems there because the flow is not simulated so well. And people will notice, who live there, who will notice that the the, the, the forecasts are perhaps less reliable, less good, that in regions where it's easier, like say in a way, the British Isles are not too bad because we get the flow from the Atlantic and it's a relatively smooth surface. We don't have a huge amount of observations from the surface, but we use loads of satellite measurements, which can cover ranges where there's no human being to take measurements from the ground. And so it sounds, uh, that's interesting, so it's almost like because the you have a mountain that the grid is sort of distorted and stretched, and then that starts to affect the calculations on the interconnectors on the on the grid. I see. I hadn't thought. I thought it'd be like much more over an ocean or somewhere in the Western Isles. But super, very interesting. And is that you mentioned the the sort of chaos theory or the butterfly effect, where you've got something happens at the start of the. So you have your fifteen day forecast, but in reality, something happens at the start of that forecast, which it, when the weather actually happens that then throws the model out because it sort of has the amplification of the sort of chaos theory. Is that something that happens occasionally or does it happen all the time? And is weather chaotic, I suppose, is what we're getting to. Yes, yes, weather is certainly chaotic. And let me come back to your um, mentioning of the butterfly effect, just in case people or listeners are not quite familiar with it. It's, it's really a phenomenon called chaos theory that was uh, played a big role in terms of meteorology and in weather forecasting and it all goes down to a very famous scientist called Ed Lorenz who in the 1960s basically discovered this and he gave a talk a conference talk and the title of this had something like can can a wing of a butterfly in Brazil uh, impact uh, create a tornado in Texas or something like that along that line and he used this analogy of a small change a tiny change a butterfly uh, flaps the wings and can it have a huge impact like a tornado or a, a hurricane or something somewhere else and we know nowadays yes it can it certainly can and it all has to do with the fact that in nonlinear chaotic systems that are sensitive to a small change at the beginning of the forecast of the simulation can can um, amplify to to larger ones. This is what we call chaos, and we know this happens. And you know, as a user of weather forecast, you know this happens because you will hardly find a weather forecast that goes out to fifteen days and is good. And the fact is that this is where we reach that point where we can't do that anymore because. If we start our forecast, we take into account the observations of the atmosphere of the Earth as good as we can. And we have loads of data available. We have loads of techniques to put these data into our models. But there will always, always be a small, tiny uncertainty there. 
and you can do whatever you want. That you you're never ever going to be totally perfect. And any of these small uh, uncertainties in the beginning, with how we estimate the state of the atmosphere, will amplify eventually. And as you say, it's not something that occurs with the same degree all the time. It is dependent on where we are on Earth and in our mid latitudes location here in the UK. We are especially quite prone to this because. We have all the low pressure systems, the synoptic systems coming through, and they are especially um, active when it comes to these chaotic growths of, of uncertainties. So the weather, when 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 the forecast doesn't work out, because um, I'm not going to say it's wrong, it's just different. If it doesn't work out as planned, it's because something has happened further away in time or space or both that has created a chaotic amplification here which has changed the weather exactly that sort of there, there might be tiny tiny sensitivities dependencies on on the atmospheric state somewhere else and then if we as i as i mentioned because we're looking at a global system and we're very much impacted here by what's happened elsewhere before so this will be propagated forward and what we do in order to take this in account because this effect has been recognized now for many years is we try to emulate these sensitivities and we try to do this by running not just one forecast where we're very prone to these sensitivities but we run a whole ensemble a whole bunch of similar forecasts they're they're identical in the sense of the underlying physics behind all this but they're not identical in how they start off and this is how we try to take into account these these slight uncertainties at the beginning by running many 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 simulations what we call an ensemble and then we end up with different solutions after, say, 15 days. And then the range of these solutions after 15 days, the different weather forecast scenarios, so to say, they give us an indication of how much confidence we can have in a specific forecast. And if they all produce something very, very similar, and of course our confidence is very high, and you know you sometimes may hear that the forecast is going to say, like at the moment, next week is going to be really, really warm. Every day will be warmer now until beginning of next week. We're quite confident in that because all of our ensemble simulations produce similar response. And in some other cases, and sometimes this is very nicely communicated in on the television or in weather forecast, we don't know. It could be the case. The, the jet stream and goes in this direction and we have the more milder weather or it goes in perhaps a, another location um, then we end up with a situation that is perhaps more colder and, and we know ob about these uncertainties but narrowing them down in advance is not always possible. I mean it's fascinating it's so complicated you said earlier that climate the climate is made up of lots of weather and if the weather's so hard to predict and so chaotic how on earth do we figure out what's happening with climate and how it changes and is that is that related to your other role is that more climate driven the the center the national center for atmospheric science and how do we how do we connect the two because you know I, I originally sort of when i started thinking about your roles i was thinking oh yeah weather climate it's like a bigger version of it but actually when you listen to the how difficult it is just to look 15 days ahead. It sort of sounds like it's potentially two very different sorts of sciences in some ways. The answer is, this is an excellent question and it's sort of really also the motivation why I have these two jobs. It's it's both. It's the same problem in the sense that we use the same physics to understand it, the same flow simulations, but the difference is very much that in the weather forecasting problem, 
we, we're dealing with this chaotic system where we know the sensitivities come from the start of the forecast, from the beginning, what we call the initial conditions. Whereas if we look at the climate timescales, at the longer timescales, we know other processes are more important. The initial conditions will be sort of forgotten after 15 days or something, roughly. And after that, it's much more important, for instance, what the ocean underneath the atmosphere does. If we have a big, warm ocean underneath the atmosphere, it will have a different effect on our weather forecast than if the if we have sea ice or cold conditions in the ocean underneath there. And this is where climate change comes in. With the changing climate over the last hundred or so years, we observe quite a warming of the oceans as well. We observe a warming of the atmosphere. And this changes the weather behavior. In a way, it, it's a different problem because we need to understand these factors like the ocean, what they be, how they behave and what, what influences their, their evolution to understand better what the atmosphere does. But it's also things like greenhouse gas changes by pollutions in the atmosphere, be it um, by gases that, that we produce by burning fossil fuels. Also, they have an effect on purely on the atmosphere as such. Uh, they produce warming because they capture the heat uh, or the, 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 the CO2 produces radiative effects in the in a certain wavelengths of the spectra of, of the Earth, of the atmosphere, and capture the warm of uh, in the longer wavelengths within the atmosphere. And that then has feedbacks on the oceans, the ocean warm, they take up some of this carbon. So it's it's both. It's the same mechanism in terms of the flow patterns in the atmosphere, but it's a much more complex question because it includes components like the biosphere and the ocean and the soil and the the, the sea ice. The yeah, sort of that are not so relevant for the next fifteen days if we forecast the weather. And what's the what's what's the time frame that you're looking at on climate change? Is it is it decades? Is it hundreds of years? I mean, we're, we're very focused as a community now on getting to net zero by 2050. But I think the Earth will still be warming at that point because we're still adding carbon up to that point, And then we need to decarbonize after that point. So are you, are you looking in sort of decades or hundreds of years with the climate forecasting? Yeah, my, my own specific work is more on the shorter timescales for climate. So I... Um, I try to link really between weather and climate and the, the, the link between weather and climate is something that we call seasonal forecast, for instance. So seasonal forecasting is trying to predict what's going to happen next winter or next coming summer, so the next season ahead. And it use, it makes use of both the initial condition information and these boundary condition information, so the ocean state, for example. Um, this is something I do both in Reading at the Weather Center, but also at my my uh, job in Oxford with, for the National Center for Atmospheric Science. And from the seasonal forecasting, then there's a very natural link to what we call the cadal predictions. So these are forecasts initialized as well, trying to see how the state of the climate system evolves within the next 10 years. So that's short compared to other timescales in climate where people look into the end of the century or so. So I'm on the shorter end of the climate scale, but on the longer end from, from the weather. And I'll try to see the link between the two, which is which is perhaps more tricky than the individual problems themselves, where it's well separated on both timescale ends. 
But I think that time scale is very important because people tend to go, I want to know what the weather is tomorrow or climate change is such a big thing in the future, why should I even think about it? But actually, if we can bring it back to the next, what's going to happen in the next decade, I think it's quite interesting. But is the challenge there that if you run a model and say, actually, the seasons are getting hotter or colder or wetter or drier in the next 10 years, you tend to have the climate deniers going, oh, it's just weather and it changes naturally. Or are we seeing a pattern where from season to season, from year to year, over a decade horizon, the weather is actually changing as a result of the climate impact? Yeah, let, let me start by, 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 by saying, yeah, so if we, if we look at the longer time scale first and people run climate models and so, and from all these studies, we know the effect of our emissions and sort of the, the, the forcing onto the atmosphere. And that will produce more heat, more warm, warmer conditions in general, more heat waves in the summer and so on. But then you're totally right. On top of this, we have the natural variations that come through uh, internal fluctuations that we always observe in, in systems like complex, like, like the atmosphere and the climate system. And the difficulty on these timescales, exactly as you said, is to bring the two together. And what we try to do with these climate forecasts rather than to climate projections. The difference there is that we try to bring in the information of the the internal variations that one has, you could say, perhaps have always been in there, together with the forced response that we see on the longer term very clearly from, from say, greenhouse gases, for example. Mm-hmm. But we also know now, and uh, we had the IPCC bringing out big reports on this, that we're starting to see the effect of um, the, the global warming on the regional scales already now on shorter timescales. And if I think, for example, we're now here in the summer in the UK and Europe, the European summers are an example where we convinced quite uh, by our research that we see an imprint of these longer-term climate changes that are quite likely linked to the activities that the humans had on the atmosphere, be it through the fossil fuel sort of burning and greenhouse gas concentrations, but also very much through the aerosol components. When when we burn coal or something, we, we used to have lots of sulfate aerosols um, emitted into the atmosphere and it had they basically had a cooling effect uh, when we had those. But when in the late, say, late 80s, 1990s, uh, especially in Europe, parts of Eastern Europe, especially, there were measures introduced to reduce these uh, aerosol emissions that effectively increased the temperature further. And we see this effect, especially strong in summer over Europe already. And if you probably noticed last few summers, when they were always warmer and warmer and warmer, especially in the south of Europe. And we we quite we we we. We think that is very much related to this climate signal there. On top of this, you might have, you know, last week or so it was cold or, you know, it was quite cold even for British Sunday. Next week will be warm. There's still fluctuations around it. And so it sounds like, I mean, that is really interesting about the aerosols actually burning fossil fuels cooled, had a cooling effect, but now we've moved to sort of clean, clean gas. It, it's, that's, that's gone away, but the carbon emissions are still increasing. For Europe um, or the UK, what's what's the weather going to be like in ten years' time? Do we is it going to be warmer? Is it going to be wetter? Is it going to are we going to have a perceptible change, or is it just going to be more chaotic? Difficult question. So the the, the problem in Europe is that we have a rather large 
component of sort of variability, natural variability and noise in the system that is difficult to forecast. And the signal that we get from, from these forced um, impacts like the greenhouse gases or the aerosols or whatever is relatively small. So in combination, what we call the signal-to-noise ratio is rather small compared to other parts of the world. So it's and, and if you have a small signal-to-noise ratio, it's, it's, it's harder to detect any change with sort of a bit more certainty. So from that point of view, Europe is not ideal. Anywhere in the tropics, the, the signal-to-noise ratio is much more favorable in the sense that you can detect signals easier. And that's why sort of sooner in terms of climate change timescales than in our world. So for Europe, I should say in, in general, there's also quite some difference in our confidence related to different variables. So we have more confidence, say, to uh, variables that are more directly related to the large-scale atmospheric flow, to the winds, basically. We don't have that much confidence to specific precipitation forecasts, for example, because these are much more influenced by local processes and they are very difficult to simulate. So everything to do with clouds, it's a huge problem and all kinds of models. It's in the weather models. You notice this, maybe, I don't know whether you noticed yesterday. In the mornings, we had clouds and the temperature was 17 degrees. The forecast was maximum around 24, I think. So it's 17 degrees in the morning or, you know, mid-morning. You thought, oh, my God, the forecast is wrong. But then the clouds broke up around lunchtime and it got warm very, very quickly. So if you can forecast the clouds well, it has a huge impact on the local temperature, local precipitation. And this is, of course, very, very tricky because it comes back to the point that I talked about earlier, laying a grid across the whole globe. The grid has grid cells that are on the order, in the weather model, they are on the order momentarily, say, 10 kilometers. That's very high resolution. In climate models, it's more of the order of 100 kilometers. But even 10 kilometers and simulating clouds, it's a huge challenge. So we have to be realistic with these expectations. So for precipitation, next 10 years, there's not much we can say. For temperature, we know the warming signal, partly forced, will have quite an impact. And we expect to see warming over Europe, although it's not a monotonic increase. We always have bubbles on top of it. I've got so many questions. And then... Which part of the world is going to be, or which sort of types of regions of the world are going to be the most susceptible to, to sort of climate change over the next 10 years? Because we've had this horrendous sort of heat wave in India over the last few weeks where temperatures have got into the mid-high 40s, which I think is, I can't remember the temperature that is deemed to be um, un, uninhabitable. Is it sort of the Indian subcontinent or sort of more... Um, sort of marginal areas where we're just going to have a, a, a much quicker impact over the next 10 years and where people, where areas become that are currently habitable become inhabitable. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, there are certain hotspots in the world where we probably see these these signals coming out much quicker. And India, the, sub, the Indian subcontinent, is, is, is one of those coming out. But we also see other areas, tropical areas, basically in Africa, where we see quite some strong signals, and in South America as well. The 10-year timescale is probably not quite the correct one there. There's still lots of variability on a 10-year timescale there. But if you think about, you know, you mentioned net zero and going to 2050 or something. So these are the timescale where we 
probably expect more to to see there exactly yes yeah and are politicians listening i mean we've baked in so much heating and climate change potential over the last 150 years um and there's lots of talk now um over the last few years about changing but are our politicians listening to to you and and your work i know you're not into the into the business of lobbying because it would seem that if if we can highlight there's impact in the next 10 years that's sort of within the within the horizon of of a politician's career which is often often the problem when it's outside of their time horizon so you know 10 years you would have thought would get any any global politician interested in in looking for solutions if it's going to put their people at risk yeah yeah i mean i'm not in the lobbying part of the community at all i must say of course you follow this and you see one of the issues is uh, the science behind all this is becoming very clear for 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 climate change timescales. So I think there's very little doubt about this. But the unfortunate situation is, as 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 you alluded to, is it's on a timescale that is beyond the usual, you know, outlook of a politician. But if we come to the timescales that are more relevant for policies next ten years or so, unfortunately, we have our science is less certain about these changes because we have these natural fluctuations on top. So that's why my answer to your previous question of the next 10 years for Europe or the UK can't be very specific because there's so much uncertainty in there. So there's a bit of a um, of a problem there. We, we're quite certain for the longer timescales and the overall effect, but we're not so certain for the shorter timescales. And I... I I'm not very confident to go to a politician and say, "Gonna, you know, this is going to happen in the next 10 years. Please do something based on my forecast for the next 10 years. It would have to be based on the very longer term projections from, 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 from climate impacts. And this is where it becomes tricky. And this is where my, my interests really are to try and understand that better and try to make progress on the science side to uh, perhaps reduce these uncertainties. Auntie, we, 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 I'm conscious of time. I want listeners to, I want, I want listeners to understand a few more things about you. How on earth did you get into this field? Because it's, um, it's you know, it's super relevant at the moment. Massively technical. Did you always want to be a, a weather forecaster or a climate scientist? How on earth did you, did you get to get into this, uh, into this world? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not one of these people who grew up as children measuring the weather and having little weather stations in their back garden at all. <laughs> no, I mean I, I find it interesting in the sense that it's it's an area that affects us every day. You can see it, you can feel it, you can yeah experience it all the time. But my my interest came more from the science side, from the physics side. I think when I was at high school. I was looking into options of doing something sciencey, and then I realized it was quite a revelation. And I realized that weather science is basically is is physics. That that was what attracted me at the time. I was sort of interested in going in a physics direction, but I wasn't particularly keen of ending up, um, you know, with some particle physics uh, or things I, I really really appreciated that what we do is physics is geophysical fluid dynamics as the flow and the intact thermodynamics lots of things but it's 
on applied to a problem that surrounds us all the time is the nature is beautiful it's it's having a impact because we try to forecast the weather every day we climate change is such a topic there wasn't so much a topic when i started off really so i then after school i went to study meteorology and physics in germany which is basically this the way it's organized is you study physics the first couple of years and then you specialized in meteorology so and that worked out very very well for me yeah absolutely fantastic and 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 very interesting um we have a little thing on uh, the podcast called the first mile planet saber hall of fame where we ask our wonderful guests to leave something in the hall of fame for future generations and it can be a person a thought a thing a concept what would you like to leave in our hall of fame you mentioned a person the one person i i admire or i i i find is is played such an important role is somebody called ed lorenz i mentioned him before he was a meteorologist a mathematician and a meteorologist working at mit in in Massachusetts in in the US and and he came up with this concept this idea of chaos and he is dead by now but his ideas have lived on for such a long time and are so important and will be important in the future that I think I mean he would be a, a person of fame he was a very humble person as well he was not one of these people who made a big fuss see lots of the scientists nowadays in the media and so on they're very the opposite basically and then he would be the perfect person to 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 be in in the hall of fame together with some clouds yes why not <laughs> well I, th- I i i love it we we now we now have somebody who understands chaos in the uh hall of fame and that'll definitely um stand us in stand us in good stead i am sure and it's been great having you on the show absolutely fa- i mean barely scratched the surface but i think you definitely get uh, the award for explaining probably one of the most complicated subjects, um, which you do brilliantly when you do a presentation with graphics. But I think you've done even better without anything and explaining how it all works. So it's worked really well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. In, term- <laughs> in terms of um, just so people can find your, if they want to do more re- reading around and, and find you and your research, where's the best place to sort of get some links in terms of a website um, that you can uh, tell the listeners now so to, to find you or, or one of the institutions? Yeah, so I'm based at the University of Oxford in the physics department. The physics is a big department, and we have a sub-department that is called AOPP, and it stands for Atmospheric, Oceanic, and Planetary Physics. I'm based in there, if you look for my name, Antje Weisheimer. The institution that does the operational weather forecasting is called ECMWF and there's a nice web page with loads of information. There's also some staff there. It's www.ecmwf.int for international organization or I'm on Twitter, I think. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) the usual things. I think if you type in the name, you'll come up, you'll find something. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Antje, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. Thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's really a pleasure. And um, I'm looking forward to any more of your podcast episodes in the future. Thank you. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Zero five zero five.